We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. risk to going the doctoral direction and maybe uh, we, we should not. And so I walked away still sort of muddled in terms of the direction. Well, welcome to episode 67 in season four. Today, we have the distinct privilege of speaking with one of the most prolific authors and the national treasure for the PA profession, Mr. Jim Cauley. We speak with Jim about his illustrious career as a PA, an educator, leader, and author of over 150 peer-reviewed journal articles, five textbooks on the profession, and over 250 columns as an editor or columnist. Jim was the first PA recognized with the prestigious Eugene A. Stead Award of Achievement from the American Academy of Physician Associates, and he is truly one of the most genuinely humble leaders to be around. You can learn more about his extensive list of accomplishments at our website, papathpodcast.com. Well, Jim, what a privilege and an honor for the two of us to be able to interview you today. You have done so much for our profession. And I mean, the list is incredible. Before we start asking you about how you ended up in the profession in the first place, I just want to, we don't normally read the bios during the recording, but you have, there's no way we'll cover this in in an hour, but you have had so many roles. We'll have to bring you back another time to, to dig deeper, but here, here's just a, a short list of what I've read through all the different bios that you have out on the web. You've been a founding program director. You've been an interim program director, I believe, several times. You've been a professor, a visiting professor, a scholar in residence, an emeritus professor, an adjunct professor, a department chair, a department vice chair, vice chair of the Federal Advisory Committee on Training for Primary Care Medicine and Dentistry. You have an honorary doctorate in humane letters. You are the first recipient of the Eugene A. Stead Award of Achievement by the AAPA. Besides all that, you've been an author and a co-author of over 150 peer-reviewed journals, five textbooks. You've been a contributing editor, editor, or columnist for over 250 columns. You've been a grant reviewer for a multitude of organizations, a visiting scientist, a distinguished fellow of the AAPA, a primary care health policy fellow, a past president of PAEA and of the PA Foundation several times, NCCPA commissioner, legislative chair, outstanding PA of the year for Maryland, consultant both nationally and internationally for various organizations and universities, a senior research fellow, of course, a PA, and from my own personal knowledge, you're quite a golfer. Does that, does that wrap it up pretty closely? Well, on that last point, I don't know if I'm, uh, I'm a hacker. <laughs> I well, love that, to play, but I, uh, I wouldn't say I'm good at it. Oh, okay. my goodness. Well, that's, qu- that's quite a list. I, I guess if you stick around long enough and you show interest in doing things, you, you get to, to have that list. You know, it's a 50-year run. So um, you do a lot of things, I guess, in 50 years. Yeah. Well, well, how did it all start for you? How did you end up in the PA profession? 
I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and I went to a local St. Francis College, which at that time didn't have a PA program. And I got a degree in history and political science. And I, I joined the Army, and I was looking for something to do, uh, waiting for my National Guard call-up. And my mother got me a, helped me to get a job as an orderly. And I really was fascinated by the inside of a hospital. And so I did my Army thing, came back home and applied to five or six PA programs and disappointingly didn't get in. But I, I hung out with the residents and this one resident took off to Brooklyn after uh, at, at the changeover on the July 1st uh, uh, date. And he sent me a letter, believe it or not, at that time they sent letters to say there was a PA program that was just starting in Brooklyn and it was at Turo. And I drove to New York right away, interviewed and got in. Yeah. So it was a big break. And then what was even a bigger break was after I finished uh, Turo, I answered an ad for the Johns Hopkins PA program, which at that time had just started. And I went and I interviewed there for an entry-level faculty position and was lucky enough to land a a job at Johns Hopkins, working in primary care 50% time and 50% teaching in their program. And It was such a rich environment. Uh, Sadly, that program only lasted until 1979, but I enjoyed every second of it and was also fortunate enough to have a mentor who at that time was a president of PAEA or what was then APAP, uh, Archie Golden. And he helped foster my career. And I I can't give him enough credit for taking me, uh, uh, hiring me, first of all, and allowing me to develop into the faculty role at, at, at Hopkins. And that program, one of its characteristics was that it had a big faculty. And so there weren't, you know, it weren't heavy duty demands immediately thrust on me, which I've come to appreciate is, is a very important factor in, in professional development. How many times have you and I and Steph seen faculty that are hired on and their, you know, their workload initially is just overwhelming. Absolutely. Uh, and somehow I, I escaped that. And I went on to uh, the School of Public Health. Archie supported me in that uh, effort as well. And then uh, it, it started my academic career. And I, I was fortunate to be in that kind of environment where, you know, scholarship counted for something and, and as well as teaching clinical practice. And it was a, just a wonderful experience. Unfortunately, it came to a close. So it sounds like when you first started in academia, you had, am I, is it fair to say you had release time for scholarship because they valued it? Yes, uh, that is fair to say, yes. And, and, and I also had the, the support to uh, pick topics uh, in PA education. Obviously, Archie was interested uh, as well. He was able to foster in me interest in PA, specifically in PA education. As I said, he was president at the time. And so I started getting, you know, going to the meetings pretty often. But it was an environment that allowed me to engage early on in scholarship. I still didn't know what I was doing, but I was attempting to learn. Sure. And, and it sounds like you also had a, what I've found to be very successful is that classic team-based approach where you find collaborators and that's a hallmark of what you have always been in our profession from my perspective, Jim, is you always sought out collaboration so that publications can be a group effort and 
everybody can experience the good times and the rough times of that. Yeah, I, I learned that that's the way that you really have to go to be successful is, is to collaborate. You know, over the years, you, you realize there are very few lone wolves in the, in the area of research and scholarship. It's always with people. And, and so it, it, it's the way you have to do it. Yeah, I feel like researchers are people that just always have questions in their heart, you know, and I think that there are there are people who are doing research and there are probably people who want to do research. And I think it's that there's a bit of demystifying that needs to happen. And I think that's one of the, you know, that that collaborative spirit is one of the best ways that you can go about getting into research is if you find a, a common interest with someone who's maybe doing some research, it's a great way for people to kind of break into it is to jump onto a team that's that's doing some of this. So you, you don't have to kind of go it alone. You, there really are other people out there that probably, if you have the question in your heart, they probably have the question in their hearts too. And you can, you know, you can band together with other experienced people and, and really kind of start to earn your research chops that way. Yeah, I've been actually doing work with uh, Zandi Garino at Yale on that, this very topic. And she has done some, some wonderful preliminary work looking at you know, the, the drivers of scholarship in, in, our, in our profession, particularly in PA education. One of her efforts with uh, Elena Min uh, that she presented actually was to uh, assemble the, the bibliometric list of high performance, high output scholars in our profession and then to give them a questionnaire and then go on to interview them is both qualitative and quantitative, trying to figure out what it is among those people that makes them successful and in publishing, even when they're in an environment that does not always foster publishing and, and, and scholarship. And you know, we, we know that there's lots of places where you know, the first priority is getting the job done and teaching. And, and you oftentimes don't have the, the rewards available as a PA. You, you may or may not be eligible for tenure, those kinds of things. Uh, but in spite of that, there are a number of our colleagues who get the job done. And so there's a, there's a lot of interesting intrinsic factors that she and colleagues have been able to identify uh, that, that, that it's fascinating. Jim, as you noted, you know, your career spans 50 years and, you know, that the achievements and accomplishments that you have to your name are, are truly, are truly, are truly stunning. And, you know, those who are new to our profession probably maybe can't quite appreciate the contributions that you've made to our profession. Uh, if you follow social media, one of the trends right now is, to, is the, you know, you see these memes that are, you know, how it started and how it's going, you know, <laughs> and, it, and they're usually kind of comical means, you know, I feel like you're one of the people that can still really speak to how it started and how it's going. So if, if you were to kind of take that current trend of how it started and how it's going and, and really kind of summarize our profession, how it started and how it's going, what would you say about that? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I, 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 I use that experience you know, I'm really interested in trying to capture some of our history. And we did that in some of our books and, and stuff that I, that I do with Rod Hooker. But it was, for those of us who got involved in 72, 73, 74, it, you had to realize that that was a very formative time within the profession. And it was also a tenuous time. 
there was about maybe 30 programs. Most of them were grant funded. And, you know, a number of them fell by the wayside as, as happened to Hopkins. But you could tell that there was something going on and that, that, that you know, even beyond the attention that Duke got, you know, you could tell that there was a critical mass being attained of individuals in medicine and in medical education that thought that this was, this continued to be a good idea. And it just started to grow and grow. And then it kind of slowed down for a while because, it, you know, there were bumps in the road for sure. And I, I know that in, in 1980, when the Geminac report came out, that was, that was a pretty uh, tough time. It, the, the Geminac report said there's going to be too many doctors by 1990 and way too many doctors by 2000. And that came out in 79. And it was the factor that closed. Hopkins and Penn State Hershey and Indiana, you know, a number of my colleagues, and I, I had just, you know, essentially lost my job at Hopkins, were searching around for alternatives, quite frankly. There were a number of, of colleagues that went to medical school, law school, they bailed, essentially, because the, the future was, in all seriousness, pretty tentative. And somehow we got through the, the 80s with pretty much a, a status quo of 50-ish programs and federal government support started going down. But then in the late 80s, things seemed just to take off and it was remarkable. Maybe it was the, the Clinton uh, healthcare reform effort. Maybe there was something in the market that just clicked and said, oh, we have PAs and these PAs are wonderful creatures and they do all sorts of wonderful things. And then that started to take off. But, you know, that's my sort of recollection of those 70s and 80 uh, days. Th there was also a really dedicated band of hardcore workers who knew that they had to work hard on their state level as well as the national level to continue to get enabling legislation and prescribing authority and privileges in hospitals and all, all of those kinds of things. And it was almost a messianic campaign. And there was a handful of maybe, you know, 40 or 50 people within that, that were in the academy as well as in APAP, you know, most of them program people that knew that, uh, that there had to be individuals and groups that really pushed to, to move the, the profession forward Sometimes in, in an era where there was not a lot of external support for the PA profession. Yeah, it's really interesting for me to, to listen to this history. You know, I mean, obviously I'm a student of the history of the, of the profession and, you know, I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about it. But I think that's something that perhaps, you know, people that are newer to the profession don't really realize how tenuous things were in those early days. And they don't really realize you know, we stand on the shoulders of the giants who really pulled this profession together. And it was happening, you know, I mean, Mickey, you can speak a little bit too, you know, often Duke is sort of credited, you know, with the, with the beginning of the profession. And certainly they um, are deserving of that. But, you know, at the same time, Colorado, Medex, there were, you know, there were other sort of foci of the profession that were kind of evolving at the same time. And that all really had to come together and people really had to say, you know what, we're going to do this and we're going to pull it all into one and we're going to make this work. And so I wonder if you can kind of speak to that a little bit. 
it, you know, in the books that uh, that we've written, and I, I, I've usually written the history chapter, and, and we have a table where we list about 10 or 12 individuals, most of them physicians and some of them PhDs, who were really fighters for the PA profession on the educational level. Uh, some were physicians like, you know, I mentioned Archie Golden, uh, there was Jack Ott, uh, there was Fran Horvath from St. Louis University. There were a number of other, Dennis Oliver, of course, comes to mind as one of the major forces, Reggie Carter, a, a number of um, individuals who, who really fought the good fight during those years and, and who were in influential positions. Their voices matter. You know, Dennis was in uh, at, at Iowa and was a, a major voice. The people at Oklahoma. I remember a guy named Tom Godkins. I don't know if either one of you have ever heard of him, but he was uh, number two beside Bill Stanhope at the University of Oklahoma program when that was considered to be, you know, one of the top three or four. And I, re I remember him challenging, we were at a meeting, this was 77, 78, challenging us uh, to start publishing and start doing research because he knew that, that for us to be successful in academe, we had to do that. And, and, and he, he was a very far-sighted individual that doesn't get enough credit. I think he was president of APAP somewhere in those very early days. And he was also president of uh, the academy in, the, in those early, uh, early years. But it was those kinds of people, I think, that, uh, that we needed. And thank goodness we had uh, that, that moved the ship and the organizations in the ship forward. So remarkable in the, in the, in the 90s, though, how things just... I don't know what it what sparked it, but there was a spark somewhere that led to expansive growth and and development and acceptance. When we spoke to Ruth Balwig a couple of seasons ago, she she talked about this a little bit. It seemed like early on when you were talking about those couple dozen programs to the fifty, that kind of phase of our profession, the PA educational arena was incredibly collaborative. They shared. Person training yes. grants, they you know they they were all trying to help each other be successful. I wonder as you think about that, what you just described going into the '90s when it started to blow up, were there any changes that you saw in the culture of the the PA educational world or the universities yeah. involved in this and things of that nature? One phenomena that w that we traced in a couple of papers was the decline in federal support, you know, and the transition. And I remember folks at HRSA often saying. Uh, that you needed to institutionalize your PA program because you're not going to have federal uh, support, you know, for very much longer. And, and they were, you know, they were absolutely right that the number of, of funded programs, you know, started to go down in the 80s and continued in the 90s. And despite that, programs, and, and it may have been that programs discovered uh, that it was a pretty attractive program to have on your campus, that it attracted students, lots of applicants. Perhaps there was economic forces that were, that were operational, but the growth in both in academic health center kind of environments, as well as in you know, private liberal arts colleges uh, started really to, um, to explode. I think between like 92 or 93 and 2000, the number doubled. So it was it was really incredible, and that continued through the uh, the, the early decades of twenty uh, first century. When I was first in practice, I remember at the hospital watching this kind of phenomenon take place. When a doctor first hired a PA, 
suddenly within about two years, there were a, a dozen or more PAs. When yeah. the doctor bought a brand new Jaguar, <laughs> within like a couple of months, there were like 10 of them in the parking lot. Um, yeah. And I think for PA education, it was the deans of colleges saying, hey, that is a that is an up and coming profession that can make us some money and help support other programs. And it, it became a very popular thing among the academic elite, if you yeah. will. I think that's also when surgeons discovered PAs too. I, I really think that there was a big uptick in the utilization of PAs in specialty and surgical medicine at that time. Good point. Yeah, yeah. I think you're you're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Steph, that's a great point because I remember when the orthos in our hospital thing, they were first assisting each other for all these simple, straightforward ACL, what have you, surgeries. When they realized that they could double their income and, yeah. and you know, in fairness, double the access to rapid care for patients by having a PA first assist, it, it just blew up. Well, because at that same time, there was concern, right? Because I mean, PAs, the, the genesis of the PA profession was always with that thought that PAs would really fill that kind of primary care need and the primary care gap. And, and that was really how it all started. And that was a period of time where you really started seeing a lot of PAs move away from primary care. And, yeah. and again, I, I really think that kind of coincided with surgeons discovered, hey, we can, you know, we can really utilize PAs in surgical practice really effectively. And I think yeah. that, that those all those stars all kind of aligned at the same time. Well, one yeah. thing that, uh, that, that Kevin, your comment reminded me of is that, that part of this growth happened in small liberal arts colleges. And, you know, it, in the 90s and in the 2000s, uh, you know, I, I started doing a fair amount of consulting. And one of the consults I remember, one of my first actually was at Elon. And it was really interesting because Elon was this small backwoods liberal arts college in, in between Duke and, and Wake Forest. And it had been there just perking along at 1,500 students per year since the 1890s. Mm -hmm. And they brought a guy in, Leo, I forgot his last name, who transformed the institution. And Leo and somebody else wrote about the transition of Elon from this sort of backwater place to a thriving university that had, you know, health programs all over the place. They had a law school, they had an MBA, a, a business school. And one of the early programs that they brought was a PA program. Well, that was cataloged in this book. And then I started meeting other provosts and presidents of these small liberal arts colleges and they read the elon book and they said <laughs> you know i'm gonna i'm gonna follow that success menu or formula that elon did and they brought the first thing they brought in was a pa program and i i don't know how many in how many institutions that took place but it was the savior and the foundational piece of yeah. growth and transformation for all of these little liberal arts colleges who knew that if they didn't do something, they were going to be out of business. But it was a remarkable phenomena. And this was going on in the uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, I think I think that's really a salient point. The pressure for deans and presidents to grow. There's a growth mentality at universities and right. and some institutions tie that growth to community needs, state needs, et cetera. Perhaps others do it for competition, but probably at the same time, we saw the applicant pool start to rise significantly as well. So yeah, yes. Um, to change, change course a little bit, I, I had a 
I had a call, I was doing a reference check on somebody a few weeks ago, and I had a call with a, a dean of a major university who was the reference for this individual. And he's a physical therapist by training and, and is the dean of a college of allied health sciences. And we were kibitzing about something different. And, and he shared with me his perspective. He was talking about research dollars coming into universities, into colleges. And in his experience, PT, you know, physical therapists were at that point professionally in terms of their maturation, that they were starting to bring in significant research dollars from the feds into their uh, various, you know, research foci. And he said, he said, ICPA in that same trajectory, just a, just a, a behind the PTs, because the PAs are a little bit newer than the PT profession. But he, he sees that coming down the pike where we are starting to have PAs build these stronger research portfolios that will qualify for NIH grants and other yeah. federal agencies. Yeah. What's your perspective about that? Well, I hope he's right, but my concern is that unlike PT and unlike nursing uh, and, and most of the other, you know, constellation of health professions, we share a discipline. We don't have our own discipline. And I think that there's good parts to that and that there are downsides to that. And one of the downsides is that if our discipline is medicine, then it, it makes it all the more difficult for a, a would-be PA researcher to compete and get grant money. The terminal degree, as it stands, is a master's with your PA, which, you know, I, I know I just read an article that says that shouldn't disqualify you to get an R01, but it seems to, you know, it doesn't help. Let's put it that way. So I think that we still... I'd like us to move in, in, in that direction at a more accelerated pace, and maybe that gentleman is right, but it, th there are some tough barriers to establishing really sound research activities and programs within a PA program, unless the institution is willing to fund and put up the money for the research, because external funding is really hard to get. There's not a lot of money available through HRSA. You're playing with the big boys if you're going to get an R01 at, at NIH. And once in a while, there may be a foundation that is interested in a particular thing you're doing, but it's, it's a tough road. And the successful research programs in PA education have been largely individual effort, you know, on, on the part of, of individuals who collaborated with people, they scraped some money. A lot of times they don't have any external funding, you know, whatsoever, but there's, there's still, and, and it's changing to some degree. I see more efforts at scholarship. I think PA, EA has done a wonderful job trying to foster research and scholarly activity and broadening the definition of research, you know, to include other modalities of, of scholarship, that's, that's important. But again, it's, there are some inherent built-in challenges that, you know, because we don't own our own body of knowledge, our own discipline. Sure. I, I think about it from a perspective as a program director or leader, you know, when you're at an academic medical center, I've, I've been in a smaller health professional liberal arts kind of focused school and and I've been at a, you know, a couple academic medical centers. So, so my experiences are narrow, but, but the academic medical centers value scholarship and require it for you to 
even be contemplated for an assistant professorship, associate, et cetera. You know, tenure track at the academic medical centers I've been is is few and far between. Uh, the, but but you know, job security is there. It's never been an issue at the, the schools I've been at. But but I think what what intrigues me is when when I look back over the years in terms of the institutions, and then you look at what what is the gain for the students uh, that are enrolling in your program, and what is the gain for the program in its reputation. I think scholarship is one of those things you have to be involved with. It's it just keeps yeah. you at the cutting edge for the profession. Right. And it distinguishes your program. You know, if you're if you're a PA program, what you're one of 300. If you have some active scholarship going on, that's one of your distinguishing characteristics that separates you from the pack. One of the things that we we like to kind of explore on this podcast is really sort of advice to students. And I think that you know, given your your long history of leadership and, you know, kind of saying yes when tapped on the shoulder, I, I think that I'd like to hear a little bit about your advice for, you know, what's the what's the secret sauce for getting involved in, in leadership and kind of opening up those opportunities that students may be interested in pursuing? I think that from my own experience, it was because my friends were also similarly motivated and engaged. And so in, in, in many senses, it became fun because you would be with your friends as you were going to committee meetings and working out on or working on legislation or certification policy or whatever it happens to be. And I know that, you know, the, the younger generations, you know, they, they cherish their friendships and loves to love to be with their friends. And I, I would think that because, you know, to engage in that kind of activity solo, and yes, you meet people along the way, but it's a lot more fun if you have four or five people from your program or four or five people from your state chapter that are going to the national meeting and you, you, you know, you can socialize together as well as work together. I think there's something to be said for that uh, camaraderie. For our generation in the 70s and the 80s, it was, you know, this needed to be done. It was a campaign. You know, we knew we were going state by state by state, and we had to get this job done. We had to have 50 states with enabling, 50 states with prescribing, etc. So that was a big motivation that, thankfully, you know, most of those campaigns were successful and got the job done, and we're in the pretty good situation that we're we're, we're in today. But there, there, so there needs to be challenges that 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 we remind those generations that there's still jobs to be done, and so present that challenge to them and say, you know, come with your friends and and help us out. And one of the things that that where it really starts is on the state chapter level, and you know, we all know that there are, there are a number of AAPA state chapters that are struggling, and and have struggled. There you know, some write about apathy and the fact that there's, there's some generations that, you know, once, once they get to, to become PAs, you know, their focus is on their families, their focus is on their children, their lives. And, you know, they, they sort of say, well, I, I don't have time to do this. And so they're, they're perhaps less motivated than, than PAs in the past. I, I'm trying not to sound old here, but it, it's, uh, th there has to be a, a, an ongoing motivator 
for individuals to get involved and stay involved. Right. I mean, it's it's a little, you know, for to use a turn of phrase, it's a little easy to kind of just become fat and happy, right? You know, because things are pretty good. Our practice acts are pretty good. And, and, and I think that that's something that I certainly take very seriously as a program director. And I think it's an incumbent upon us as educators, as a, you know, more than just teaching pharmacology and pathology and, you know, how to treat disease. We really have to, as educators, we have to incorporate in our curriculum how to become an advocate, you know, not only for your patients at, at an individual level, but also at a community level, but also for our profession. Like we have to, you know, we do stand on the shoulders of giants and the folks that got us to where we are in this profession, but we also can't become complacent in that. And we have to, you know, constantly not only monitor to not lose what we fought so hard to get, but also look at how medicine is changing and how you know, maybe our profession needs to evolve and, and continue to be a, an active participant in that process as well. Yeah. And, you know, and another challenge that I, I've heard people uh, discuss is, well, somehow nursing is able to get that job done. Somehow nursing is able to get lots of nurses to show up and show up in their state capitals and all that stuff. Now, I know that there's a lot more of them than there are PAs, but, you know, they really managed to, to get that advocacy thing. You know, they've got that down and um, uh, we can learn lessons from, from our nursing colleagues in terms of working hard for legislation and, and legislative success. It's so funny you say that. I was just at a conference, a rural health conference in Flagstaff earlier this week. And we were talking, we did a, Betty Copeland and I did a, a presentation on state investments in PA education in the state of Arizona. And it was a, it was a group dynamic. We asked the, the attendees to table together and talk through some of the barriers to building a stronger primary care health workforce that reflects the communities that are experiencing shortages right now. And a few of the comments that came back really talked about that thing you just said, which was, you know, nursing has done such a great job of differentiating themselves where there are needs and, and kind of building or inculcating into the, the culture, the profession, the importance of research, leadership, and policy. And, yeah. and, and yes, you're right. There are far more, I think there's 4 million nurses in the United States and 150 plus thousand of us, but, but there's something special about that profession that has figured it out. Yeah, that's true. And we should uh, uh, aim to emulate that. Whatever secret sauce that is, we should yeah. seek to yeah. emulate I, that. Yeah. I agree. Why, why reinvent the wheel when it's been done so well yeah. in some professions? Yeah. So, Jim, yeah. uh, you've recently published a few times on the doctoral degree in PA education. So I wonder if we could just gather your thoughts from that and where do you see it going and, and what, what kind of excites you or concerns you about that? Well, I, I was fortunate enough to be invited to the doctoral summit, uh, which was, uh, in my mind, uh, uh, an important um, a meeting in, in, in my evolution of, of thoughts on the doctoral degree. Before the doctoral summit, uh, I was pretty convinced that we had to move in the direction of the doctoral degree. And I, I wrote a, a piece that appeared in February JAPA, asserting that it's, this is the, the, the way to go. The other message in that, um, in, in that editorial was that we have to make a decision. We've got to do, make a choice, uh, because if we don't make a choice, American higher education make that decision for us. So I, I, was, I, I wanted that, and, and I worked with Rick Dean to have that come out just before the doctoral summit 
so that the people got the message that we needed to sort of take charge of this issue, that we can't let others determine our fate when it comes to the doctorate. And so I was pretty convinced that, that we needed to move in the, in the direction. I went to the doctoral summit, 80 people or so, and what I saw was, uh, well, let me start here. At the doctoral summit, there was essentially three choices that were presented to the attendees. There were, there were three options. The one option was basically the status quo. The second option was move to the doctorate uh, in, a, in a slow way. And the third option was move to the doctorate in a very expeditious way. But what struck me was the, the arguments that people had for the status quo. And that the the comments from uh, and one of them one of the more influential voices in that room those two days was a guy named Ben Reynolds from the University of Pittsburgh very strong voice he's in charge of about four thousand APPs in the University of Pittsburgh system and he asserted quite frankly that whether or not a PA had a doctoral degree he would not pay them any more money for the attainment of that doctoral degree. That, that it really doesn't matter in terms of their clinical, uh, clinical roles and, and functions and capabilities. And he wasn't alone. There was a number of other people in the, in the room that said, you know, we have a pretty good spot here. We are in a pretty good place that we should appreciate uh, the fact that we have, uh, that we can do as much as we're doing with the master's degree. And so I started thinking a lot about, about those voices. And then when it came down to, you know, taking the, the sort of straw polling of the three, three options, there was a substantial amount of support for option one, which was the status quo. So in some ways, it, it sort of muddled my thinking because I, I do respect a lot of those voices that were in the room articulating that, hey, We've got a pretty good deal. There are risks to going the doctoral direction, and maybe uh, we, we should not. And so I walked away still sort of muddled in terms of the direction. There's part of me that still says this is, this is really the way to go. We have to go in this direction if we want to um, advance our, our profession. But it's, it's a tough set of issues. And it, it, I know that the PAEA board then, you know, was in attendance listening to all this discussion. And they had, they're, they're the ones that I guess this summer are meeting and convening and deciding, and they're going to present something to us all in, in October. That's going to be a pretty tough set of decisions for them to make because there was so much balance in, in many of the arguments. And quite frankly, I don't know where it's, it's going to come out, but I still feel strongly, and I, I really commended the board for grabbing the issue, doing the necessary homework, uh, calling people together uh, for the summit. And I hope that it, it results in a decision that we can all live with, but that at least it's our decision and not the decisions of deans and provosts all over the country. Yeah, I agree. You know, Kevin and I were both also in attendance at that doctoral summit. And, uh, it, you know, I go I, like you, uh, you know, I, I had opinions going in and coming out. I, I guess I hoped that I would have better clarity and better resolution yes. about about what I thought coming out. And I think it actually, I mean, yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was, it was, I, I really appreciated the um, thorough vetting of the, of the questions and all of the aspects and, you know, complexities that, that go into this issue. But right. I think I came out with almost as many, if not more questions than I had when I went in. So it was, uh, it, you know, 
it was great. I, I don't I don't envy the PAEA board the yeah. <laughs> the decision making tasks they have ahead of them. It's going to be tough. Uh, it was it was it was a great uh, experience for those uh, that day and a half because you really they they really did totally vet it vet the issue all aspects all facets of the of the question. You know some complained that there wasn't enough data you know, like uh, on the impact on diversity and, and a few other things. And so probably uh, that was, you know, you can always benefit from more data. But uh, yeah, it was, I, I, I had that similar experience. I, I was one of those, Jim, and, and it was really interesting to me because I felt like there, there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, students from communities of color, yeah, I, we've heard this from Kara Carruthers when she was on the podcast a few months ago, the yeah. idea of being an assistant, a physician assistant, so the name of the yes. profession, and then there's right. no doctorate associated with it at the time, that that holds some challenges, at least in her background. And I've heard that from many of my colleagues in LA as well when I was there. Yet, so that voice of students who choose or elect to go to a different profession that has a doctorate degree, that's the piece that I felt like we could have tried to gather and, and I was challenged to go ahead and do that work, and I should have done it, but I've got other priorities right now. But but I do think, there, you know, like you said, more data always helps. Well, not always. Good data can help, <laughs> you know, give you some some solid thinking in these areas. And, and yet, in the end, uh, ultimately, we'll see what the board goes with. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a tough decision. And, uh, you know, it, it's also difficult because, again, our discipline is medicine. Well, what are you getting your doctorate in? And you know, there's already two degrees that are doctoral degrees for medicine. And again, it, it, it creates this sort of discipline confusion in the minds of, of a lot of people. That said, that fact and a lot of the other arguments is not stopping the development of doctoral medical science programs all over the place, popping up um, you know, quite frequently on the landscape. And I think that's a trend that's certainly gonna continue and you know, they're, they're part of the argument at the, at the uh, summit in terms of, of the status quo was, well, for those individuals who wanna do the post-professional doctorate, they're out there. there. There are plenty of them there. And maybe, you know, maybe that's the sort of um, circumstance where, that, that we'll find ourselves in, is that the rank and file for the most part will be master's trained PAs and getting the job done clinically and doing the job. And for those who, who seek advancement in research, scholarship, leadership, administration, here is the pathway for you to go. I sure hope to see you in New Orleans in October to hear you articulate that to the group. I'll be there. I'll be there. Well, Jim, to wrap up, we always like to give our guests the opportunity to just share any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you that you might want to impart upon our, our listeners. Anything that you want to close with today? That's a pretty lofty goal, pretty lofty. <laughs> I, I don't have, I, I, you know, a personal note is that I am so thankful that, uh, that I, my career developed the way that it did and, and that somehow I stumbled into the PA profession because it's been so wonderful. And you know, may, maybe the, the words of wisdom is that this is still a wonderful career and a wonderful profession. And if you are interested in selecting a, a profession that is challenging and rewarding, and, uh, then this is 
great choice. And for young people, I, I would love to transmit that message to them that, that they cannot go wrong if they become a, a, a PA. It's been fabulous. It will continue to be fabulous for the long-term future. Thank you, not only for your many, many contributions to the PA profession and PA education, but also for being here with us today. Yeah, thank it's my you. pleasure. And thank you for the invitation again to both of you. And um, uh, it, it's been a great pleasure to have this discussion and conversation with you. Well, Steph and I want to thank our distinguished guest, Mr. Jim Cauley, for sharing his insight about the profession, his background in research and policy and leadership. It's truly a great honor to be able to speak with him today. Tune in next week as we speak with the leadership for the organization Physician Associates for Latino Health. This is a recognized caucus of the American Academy of Physician Associates and is dedicated to improving diversity in the profession, providing scholarships for students, and advocating for students to become great PAs. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you're walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession, and it is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.